Geek Pridecast on this Monday evening. Uh, with me tonight, uh, we have the usual faces and a special guest with us. Uh, so we've got Mark Canty. Hey, Joe. John Joe Cosgrove. Hi, everybody. Peter A. Allison. Good evening. And our special guest tonight, Matthew Dawkins. Hello there. Good to be here. <laughs> So yeah, that was very pro. He yeah, had himself on mute and then unmuted himself. Brilliant. Very good. Well, yeah, I, I know. I, I've been in this business long enough to know where the mute button is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, uh, so Matthew, uh, who are you? What do you do? Tell us about yourself. Uh, okay, my name is Matthew Dawkins. I am a, a role-playing game writer and developer. Uh, I work for a wide variety of companies. Uh, most uh, specifically, though, I spend a lot of time working for Onyx Path Publishing. Uh, I develop, write, edit games for that company, including uh, They Came From Beneath the Sea, which is just over my shoulder. Uh, that's a game I saw through from concept to delivery, and uh, They Came From Beyond the Grave, which is still available for pre-order. Um, I'm the World of Darkness in-house developer uh, for Onyx Path, as well as often working as a freelancer on various World of Darkness books for Onyx Path, Paradox, other companies. I also do video game writing uh, for companies that hire me and board game and card game writing. So I do this full time. Uh, it's for the last, I guess, four or five years now I've done this full time. And it's been a very rewarding, sometimes stressful, but always rewarding uh, career path. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoy it. I've been a gamer since, I guess, well, I've been role playing since probably the year 1998 or 99, maybe. Uh, so quite a while now, not as long as some people my age, but still quite a while. And yeah, uh, that's about me in a nutshell for role playing game history. <laughs> so you're you're living the dream basically yeah well some people would say so uh and i'm <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to say that in a dismissive way it's it is definitely a career path if you want to call it that with a lot of challenges um being perfectly candid it doesn't always pay fantastically well freelancing um and if uh, I'm, well, I'm in a very fortunate position with onyx path where i am um, hired on a monthly basis to continually develop books. Uh, if I wasn't doing that, I would be bopping around from company to company, always hustling for contracts. And I still do that because it's nice to, you know, top up my income. It's also nice to work on lots of different games. Um, but it's still a hard career to constantly be creative, mm. you know, constantly coming up with new ideas, new systems, new settings, new plot hooks or characters. But I don't mean that to say it's the hardest job in the world. It isn't. It's something I feel I'm suited to, thankfully. But uh, I, I enjoy it a huge deal. And I'm always incredibly grateful for the, I guess, the doors that have opened that have allowed me to get to this point. 
the lady gamer on YouTube says since the war. So I'm assuming that's to do with Halo. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Clara, watching. Uh, I, I see. I'm seeing uh, your messages. But yes. Uh, yeah, I started way back in the Boer War. That was when role playing games started for me. Oh wow. One thing I've been meaning to ask, like because you jump from system to system and mm. setting a setting, how do you keep it? Like how do you kind of switch your mind between systems and also? keep the ideas fresh because he kind of it's like there's a finite resource you've got to keep topping it up somehow yeah uh that, that is actually a really good question it's it can be very hard to retain all of the different systems in your head and i'm not a system person uh i can i can work within lots of systems but i'm not necessarily an innovator when it comes to them there's lots of fantastic creators in the industry who are um the biggest challenge i have is working for onyx path i work on games using the storyteller system storytelling system and story path system <laughs> And they are all D10 dice pool systems. Add on top of that the V5 system, which is nominally storyteller, but it uses different dice, has different mechanics uh, to some degree. And I work on games using all of these different systems. So that means I need to make sure I'm using the correct terminology in each one, the right difficulty thresholds, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is a challenge. Um, and likewise, coming up with brand new things, feeling like you're not just, I guess, making subtle adjustments each time is is difficult at times. But at the same time, I'm not always I'm not someone who is necessarily drawn to reinventing the wheel every single time I come up with a new game or a new idea. I don't feel like I need to come up with a new system every time. Sometimes. GURPS really is the generic universal role-playing system, and it does work for everything. Sometimes Storyteller works, sometimes D20 works. You know, there's lots of different options out there. So, yeah, the biggest challenge is remembering the differences between each one when I'm writing something so that I don't have to catch it in editing yeah. or errata. Um, just I just a quick thing. Have you, uh, have you turned off your, your camera on purpose or...? Me? Yeah, camera no. is... You can see the camera. Yeah. I can't see it for some yeah, reason. I've got camera. Oh, no, I'm yeah, still on camera. Yeah. Oh, that's very odd. It's, yeah. it's it's decided to turn itself off on my on my end. And so oh, my apologies. <laughs> I can't see it. So I'm moving. Um, I, it looks I, like quickly. on YouTube, some of the frames have moved around. A yeah, little, so but, I, so. I, I, yeah, so I'm moving things around because the video's gone ah. off. So I'm just sort of checking things. The camera is gone. The camera is oh, gone. Oh, no. Yeah, that's right. Well, as long as you can still hear me, that's yeah, the important. Yeah, I can still hear you. Absolutely fine. I'll just stick your little avatar okay. here. But yeah, Carry actually, on. one thing I wanted to ask was that um, you mentioned like the, this became full time five about four or five years ago. Yeah. At what stage did you realize this can be a full time career for you? So there was a couple of things that uh, that happened. So before I was doing this full time, I was a technical trainer at a company or various companies and um that it was a decent wage uh, it was a decent job i enjoyed that role a great deal but i was always working in the evenings and weekends doing writing and development for companies like onyx path and through my work with helmgast who make the cult divinity lost role-playing game i uh, met a guy uh who who was developing co-developing cult 
and he said, I really like your work. I really like your um, your videos. Would you would like to work on a video game with me? Uh, with Paradox specifically, because uh, this guy who was co-developing uh, Cult, a guy by the name Petter Nalo, um, also works for Paradox Interactive. And I said, yeah, definitely. And the money was uh, was good. And so I thought, okay, gear. And so I gave up my old job and started working for Paradox uh, full time, um, albeit still on a contract. And it, and then that game was cancelled. The video game was cancelled from underneath me. And this happens. Paradox cancel over fifty percent of the video games they make, uh, which is a is a high bar. But they are very strict when it comes to the quality of the games they release. And this left me in the wind a little, or would have, had I not, around the same time that I started doing the video game work full-time, also said to Rich Thomas Onyx Path, look, I'm leaving my training role, or I'm going to be leaving my training role soon anyway. There were lots of moving parts that led to that, including the company I worked for, um, doing redundancies and things and i said so i can spend a lot more time doing tabletop role-playing games so my, my plan was to balance the video gaming with the ttrpgs uh instead of doing the training with the ttrpgs and so onyx path very much um well saved my bacon in that case because i had this onyx path role as an in-house developer that i could still fall back on and along with that i was still able to freelance for other companies i don't have any kind of exclusivity deal with onyx path so i was working for companies like paradox as well on v5 um completely separate to the video game i was working on um for chaosium on call of cthulhu green ronin on modern age so i was able to build up an income where i could just keep doing it and keep doing it and now i've got enough contacts in the industry i would say and enough experience behind me that i can go to a company and say hey i'd really like to pick up a contract for somewhere between five thousand and twenty thousand words or something like that and generally i can get work because i've been doing it for a while now and i always turn in clean work i'm sure i'm not always the most inspired writer in the world <laughs> um because we've you've got to self-deprecate uh, but uh, I know that my work is always of a decent quality, and so and it's always delivered in a timely fashion. So people hire me, and so that plus Onyx Path, the Onyx Path bit being the big cent central part of my work, allows me to do it full time. That's a very long story. Made longer by Matt's mess up. Can you I, I can't say what the video game was. Unfortunately, uh, uh, no. it was never given an official title. Um, we bandied a few around, but uh, no, it's all under NDA. One of the saddest things about that video game is that myself and the rest of the team, in my opinion, did fantastic work on it. And the reasons it was cancelled, in fact, wasn't anything to do with our quality of work. It was to do with the engine of the game. And um, knowing all of our work is basically is effectively locked in a vault under NDA, probably never to see the light of day you never know project might be revived one day might be but if not there's art there's writing there's all kinds of things it's just never going to be seen oh, which is that must very be sad. absolutely gutting that must be absolutely gutting it, it definitely was 
Um, but I had a lot of people supporting me. Um, you mentioned um, uh, Lady Gamer was watching. Clara um, gave me a lot of support around that time. And, of course, Onyx Path. Um, and, yeah, my family, you know, I've I've been able to somehow manage this. And I know not everyone can, and that's not necessarily because of who I am or anything I've been able to do, but because I've been very fortunately surrounded by people and companies that have supported me. So, yeah, there's a lot of people I'm very grateful to. I've been in that position myself a few times. It's surprising just how well, how, how people step up sometimes and you don't realise until afterwards that you cheated a bit, but you've managed mm. to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. <laughs> yep, yep. That is, it's it's not always possible, but it's lovely when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to ask, in terms of um, when you're coming up with an idea or when you're developing an idea, what's your strategy? What do you do to get yourself in the zone when you're when you're doing your writing? Hmm, that's a very good question. Do I have a kind of method? Um, do you have like a certain mantra? <laughs> A, man, a mantra. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't laugh. I'm sure some people do. Uh, usually I will put on, I'm a bit hipsterish, so I put on an LP. I've got a turntable. Um, I've got, a, there's a certain psychology behind that. Uh, in that, if I put Spotify or YouTube on to listen to music, I will constantly find myself skipping tracks uh, to find something I like. And it's right there. It's right in front of me. Whereas my record player is all the way on the other side of the room. On top of that, it's a hassle to to change tracks, even if you don't like something on a record, yeah. uh, much like with a cassette. So in the end, I just have music. It's a wall of noise in a way. And it can be with lyrics, but um, and it doesn't even have to be tonally correct to what I'm writing. But that sort of that ritual get a drink put a record on sit down and then if i'm writing i will tend to break my work down i don't ever have that blank page paralysis thing that you can get because that will happen if you try and just work from scratch if let's let's say i've got ten thousand words to write on the Kia Seed bloodline in Vampire the Masquerade, I won't just um, write from A to Z. I will say, okay, well, I've got 10,000 words, so I need to spend, let's say, 3,000 words on the discipline. So I'll carve out a 3,000-word chunk, and then I'll say, and of that 3,000 words, 500 words has got to go on level 1 dot, 500 words on level 2, and then I want a sidebar that is the La Sombra account of this KSC. That's only going to be 250 words. But eventually, if you break it down like that, you don't have to fill all those blanks in immediately, and you shouldn't. But as soon as you have a skeleton in place, a structure, all of a sudden writing becomes very easy. Um, yeah. It's the same with, um, I mean, they came from over my shoulder. That was coming up with a role-playing game from scratch. But the way I do that is I'm not the only writer on that book. I may develop it, but I will make an outline that says, okay, this chapter needs to contain this, this chapter needs to contain that, and I'll hire this writer for this chapter, that writer for that chapter, and then it's up to those writers to divide those chapters down. So it's all about structure for me. Some people are perfectly comfortable being free form and constantly inspired and all power to them, but for me... <laughs> 
I, I need, um, yeah, I need the the cage around my work. So you have a roadmap then for yeah, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. A roadmap would be a good way to put it. So I don't set milestones for myself really. I don't say, okay, I need to write three thousand words today or something like that. I just, I, as long as I have the paint by numbers outline in front of me, I can do it. And that's. Um, I, I don't tend to leave it till the last week to start writing something. And some people do because they need the pressure. Uh, and that, again, is absolutely fine. Lots of people work in different ways. Uh, but usually on an, out, on an assignment, we'll have a month and a half to two months to deliver a first draft. And that's usually plenty of time for me to work on something like that. When you've got like so many writers working on a different project, how do you maintain like the same consistency of tone? Well, that's a, that is a really good question because one of the books we've currently got on Indiegogo, we're running a campaign for Mage the Ascension Victorian Age right now, or M20 Victorian <laughs> Age or Victorian yeah. Mage. That was a really interesting project for me because I'm not directly developing it, but I'm overseeing the development of it because it's in the world of darkness. It's a beautiful book. It's been fantastically written and all of that. But finding the right tone for it and also treating the subject matter with the respect that it needs, not just from a mage of the essential perspective, but from a historical perspective, because the 19th century, as much as we like to sometimes view it through this sort of steampunky uh, lens bleeding into Jack the Ripper and all that, has a lot of problems inherent in it as well that were highlighted by the the revolutions the um the people who were constantly fighting against injustice and so on and so being able to assign that book to the correct authors and ensuring as you say they're hitting the right tone they're all um treating the subject matter with the correct respect and authenticity um is a big challenge the best way we have of doing that is through pretty constant communication with the writers but also by putting them all in a similar group like a slack group slack is a piece of software yeah. that a lot of online teams use or you can you know you can use google groups as well just as easily but any kind of collaborative software now the onus goes on the writers because I've been on projects where writers have very much siloed themselves off and said, okay, well, I'm going to write my thing and I'll be back in a month, you know? And that's, that works for some people and some people can only work that way. But on a project like Victorian Mage, which was incredibly, uh, it, it needed collaboration for a huge number of reasons, um, not the least of which is that entire sort of travelogue section um, okay, well, if we want to present characters like this in China, we don't want to present characters like this in Iran or what have you. Um, oh, I guess Persia, as the Europeans yeah. would have called it at the time. Um, so people needed to be talking to each other all around the world, essentially, because that's what we were doing about their work to make sure it bled into each other, but also that everyone was highlighting the right aspects of the cultures we were focusing in on. Um, it's that book, well, not specifically that book, but I developed a book called Contagion Chronicle, which is the big crossover book for the Chronicles of Darkness game. 
and that book has almost entirely put me off doing travelogues in in games <laughs> because um I, I i'm very proud of what the writers did don't get me wrong but it was probably the hardest project i ever had to develop because every chapter has a different continent in it it's basically how um sometimes we revisit the same continent but like there will there's a uh, contagion in new zealand there's a contagion in tokyo in kyoto uh there's a contagion in congo and the amount of pressure on you when you are trying to handle all of that in a respectful and intelligent and authentic way is really quite extreme especially when you're dealing with horror because you don't want to misrepresent the people that live in these places um, or their culture. And that's not to say I'll never revisit a travel because of course I will. I, Role-playing games are made of these things. But I don't doubt that it... Well, in fact, I know for a fact it caused a certain amount of stress because I really wanted to make sure everything was as accurate as it could be. Um, and yeah, you've got to rely on your team members to talk to each other, but mm -hmm. ultimately, if you're steering the ship, you need to make sure they're talking to each other and the buck stops with you because you're the person that reviews their work. And getting back to the point about tone is as a developer, you're not just setting the writers off and letting them turn in whatever they want. They turn in their work, but then you've got to read through it all then you read through it again, marking it all up for changes. And then you potentially, sometimes in the worst cases, have to do some rewrites to make sure the tone matches. Now, my last point on this, because I know I, you ask me a simple question, but I always give a complicated answer. No, it's no, it's all I good. <laughs> you get people who just don't say anything and you have the person wants good, talk away. <laughs> um, so they came from beneath the sea is another one that has a that has to have a very consistent tone because it's a comedy game in a lot of ways it's 1950s b movie role playing game and it isn't some slapstick laugh out loud game although it can be but there's a uh, there's a certain tongue in cheek element to it that is supposed to reflect the cheap set and bad acting and over-dramatic delivery of the B-movies of the 1950s. And so every writer had to hit it. And if every writer can't hit it, because not every writer is also a comedy writer, it's up to the developer to make sure the entire book looks that way. Um, so again, that one required some massage uh, after the manuscript had been written to make that happen. Yeah. Um, with um, projects like that, do you ever maintain like a Bible, like a core document for referencing stuff um, um, just to keep people consistent? I mean, I, I must admit it's brought to mind. I was reading a thing earlier on about um, uh, Star Trek Voyager and they were saying about difficulties that a lot of the actors had with Technobabble. Mm. And apparently the only, was it, um, Robert Beltran really resorted to sticking post-it notes everywhere, which was a problem when they started having pyrotechnics going off and, and wind blowing around, apparently. <laughs> but um, apparently, um, uh, Face uh, Catherine Janeway. Um, uh, Kate Mulgrew. Kate Mulgrew. 
her Kate Melgrew, the only way she could cope with it was she tracked down a copy of Michael and Denise Akuda's Akuda Bible, which oh, okay. meant that she could understand the context of the Technobabble, and then she could actually remember it. Apparently, one one infamous thing was Robert Beltran kept on talking about subspace bacons because his brain kept on trying to find a word that he was familiar with. So with her, so her structure was to have uh, the structure that worked for a lot of the writers and some of the actors was to actually have a Bible that structured everything for them to maintain tone across properties. Because obviously that was good for Deep Space Nine and TNG and also for Voyager. Yeah. I don't know if that's something that you 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 found as a tool. Uh, yeah. Your projects. I mean, we definitely develop things like that for games with extensive meta plots, like Vampire the Masquerade. Um, you have to because Vampire. Vampire is it's it feels normal, but it really isn't among role-playing games for a game to have its own language. Uh, and Vampire the Masquerade was one of the first role-playing games to really do this in earnest. Shadowrun had it uh, beforehand with its chummers and deckers and so on. And, you know, while some editions have kind of toned that back, it's, I think, come back in the most recent one. But Vampire the Masquerade has it with Kindred and Vitae and Princes of the City and Camarilla and Sabat and clan names and things like that. Words that don't necessarily wouldn't make the layman think of what they represent. Uh, so whereas D&D, &D, a fighter is a fighter, and that makes sense. In Vampire, a Bruja is a Bruja. <laughs> what what does that mean? Um, and so when you want a new writer on this book, they need, as you say, a Bible, something they can refer to that tells them everything they need to know. Now, Ian A. A. Watson, one of the co-developers of V20, uh, not V20, M20, Victorian Age, is one of the I guess, founders and most frequent maintainers of the White Wolf Wiki, as it's known, uh, which is an unofficial database that has a lot of this information on, but it is incredibly useful to writers. And it only really exists to the degree that it does for World of Darkness because it's such a big license with smaller games like, like they came from. I mean, we don't have much of a a sort of lingua franca for they came from but you might get a game i'm just trying to think of a good example let's say slay industries slay industries is a popular game but it probably doesn't have the reach of something like world of darkness it will make lots of references to mr slayer and cadaver and mort and Mort city and shivers and things like that and again the layman doesn't have a clue what you're talking about. But likewise, the game isn't large enough to have its own wiki. So in that case, you need the people in charge of that if they're going to hire on freelancers and not just develop it all among themselves to make some kind of reference text, some kind of index, you know? Um, I mean, the alternative is you expect the writers to read everything that's been released for the game so far, which at a certain point, becomes untenable <laughs> or expensive uh, yeah or, or expensive <laughs> i mean luckily most companies will comp uh, pdfs of books to the people who are working on them but it's still uh, one of the things most very few companies take into account is research time they'll hire you to write something but they often hire you with the expectation that you already have the knowledge you need 
so if you're given a month and a half to write, you're given that month and a half to write. You're not given a month to research and then two weeks to write, unless, of course, you can write in two weeks. So um, your, your time is kind of your own and you have to be a bit self-taught in this industry. Yeah. One thing I was going to ask is like, <clears throat> Uh, obviously, major part of the world of darkness, and it has its own vague, vague, specific tone. Yeah. But mage is quite different to the rest of the world of darkness. Vampire, werewolf, wraith, and so on is all about personal horror. Yeah. But mage is quite—it's almost about hope. There's horror elements to it. It's but, interesting. You you think that? <laughs> I'm not saying you're wrong. No, but um... I mean you—you're playing someone who has the ability to change reality at their whim. Yeah, and that they see that in so doing, they have an element of hope that they believe strongly enough that they can turn reality and they can do good. Oh, subjectively speaking. Mm. Well, that's the that's the point. It is very much subjectively speaking. It's why you've got your nine or so traditions, depending yeah. on the area you're playing in. Um, the fact that their interpretation of good is going to be very different from the next mages interpretation yeah. of good as soon as you can start wielding the powers of gods essentially what is good what is for the best and yeah you are right mage is arguably not a horror game some people will argue it is i think there is a horrific element to it yeah, mostly absolutely. mostly to do with arrogance hubris um you know the, the power of corruption and so on um but I would also say that it's got a very strong urban fantasy vein. Totally. Um, yeah. It's Mage the Awakening actually capitalizes on this, the sort of uh, the Chronicles of Darkness version of Mage, because it calls it a game of mysteries or um, grand mysteries or words that affect. And Mage the Ascension is very similar. It's a game about unlocking potential, about solving mysteries, about uh, realizing the reality of the world and the planes and the umbra and so on. And so, yeah, it becomes more of a game of exploration and adventure in that regard. But it should be punctuated with horrific elements to show you how bad things can get for these supposedly you know, nigh on un unassailable mages, or magi, if you like. Um, but yeah, you're right. Mage is probably, in my opinion, and different people will disagree. Mage is the hardest World of Darkness game to write for, oh, from yes. my view. Um, but I also think it almost has the most enclosed canon of all of the uh, World of Darkness games. There's uh, some fa fans of Mage are in the real, I guess the big fans of Mage are incredibly dedicated to Mage, the Ascension, and can tell you anything about it. They love the books and uh, I, I love them for loving the books um, but at the same time for a writer coming in it can really be a challenge to just as we were talking about learn everything they need to learn about mage learn everything that's gone before but also how you know how connected is this world how is it uh, uh, is something one person has written on mage i guess canonically accurate when another character could come along and just change it on a whim yeah um but yeah uh 
Changeling the Dreaming has a similar issue, but oh, yeah. it's um, it's another very popular game. Um, some people would say it doesn't fit in the World of Darkness, but I would say it fits in the World of Darkness just as much as Mage the Ascension does, probably more, in fact, um, as it deals very strongly with personal horror issues of of things like age and, and depression and, I guess, distance from humanity in a way that V5 has really honed in on for vampire the masquerade um so yeah yeah uh, mage is a is a tricky one yeah uh yeah, i mean lady gamer says sorry this is jumping back a bit but it says uh that is the beauty of the uh they came from the they, they came from line it can be played in, in many different ways and with many uh so many tones yeah um i oh, well i like to think so uh one of the books um, Clara, the Lady Gamer, worked on was... Well, she's worked on They Came From Beyond the Grave, um, which you can still order on Backer Kit, but also they came from Camp Murder Lake, which is the slasher movie <laughs> oh, Beyond the Grave. It's a, it's a supplement to Beyond the Grave. And... <laughs> Not only do these different games focus in on different genres of movie, so of course they're going to hit different tones each time, you can run a Beyond the Grave game or a Camp Murder Lake game as utterly silly Tucker and Dale versus Evil kind of thing. Um, or you can run it as Last House on the Left or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, the, they don't prescribe tone and it's the same with beneath the sea beneath the sea at first glance is a silly b-movie game but the very first actual play i recorded of beneath the sea with a crew by the name of red moon role-playing was a 1950s alabama sort of deep south very <laughs> creepy lovecraftian uh, beneath the sea story uh, where there was it was pretty much devoid of humor it was all about sort of encroaching aquatic dread mm. and that worked incredibly well um, have you ever run into a tabletop system called 7 tv 7 tv yeah no it's i can't kind- say that it's kind. It's um, run by a, a small uh, by one, a couple of guys, um, and it's it's a kind of it's, it's cult TV tabletop stuff with mm. the same idea of the flexible tone, oh. um, and they've they've done um, uh, they've just been doing some updates to things. So they had like spy. It's, it traditionally it talked about sort of spy fire and stuff like that, and they did a cult one. They've got a fantasy expansion coming up, and they're doing some. They're cooperating with one of the um, the game writing courses at one of the universities oh, to bring out some of their expansions. But they've been going for a little while. And they have a similar concept that you can play it. It tends to play very silly, but you can play you can play around the concepts. And everything's like gear cards and plots. And if you can copy the miniatures from it, you can just you can mantle around a little tiny bit. It has hmm. similar kind of similar kind of idea. Flexing the tone around a basic core, but it's a different look at a very similar time, I think, in some ways, on on the um, cult sort of side of things. Yeah, I will have to look into that to make sure I'm not, um, we're not releasing the same games. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's not, it's not RP, it's more um, a tabletop sort of miniature side of things. Ah, it's a lot more that sort of thing, but it's an interesting, it's almost like it's, it's a, a, a similar. They started looking at very similar things, but took a different way around it. They're on their second version now, and 
the old version they had spin-offs set around things like the um seven deadly voyages mm. but also around buffy and things like that that sort of idea they they they, they do program guides and they treat it as if all the fluff is around one of those um those um, wonderful ill ill-fated tv studios that used to float around the outside of the British TV and films industry, where everything was on a on a shoestring, and you have you have card, event cards you can pull, which come down to things like the crew goes on strike because no one bought enough to, enough Jamie Dodgers or something like that, <laughs> 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 which can be quite disruptive when you're in the middle of a game because <laughs> you go into night fighting mode because they turn because someone didn't put a 50p in the meter. <laughs> <laughs> It's more on the absurd side of things, but it just kind of occurred to me it might be something you find amusing. Professional point of view, that. you never know. We might collaborate. <laughs> the guy who runs it is actually really cool. He's a guy called Carl Periton, and he lives and breathes the damn thing. <laughs> he literally has to because he he takes care of a lot of the miniature casting and stuff like that as well. All right. Well. Okay. One of you's going to ask like you don't like that they came from beneath the sea. They come from beyond the grave. Is it beyond the grave or beneath the grave? Uh, beyond the grave. Beyond the grave, sorry. <laughs> Have you got anything planned next anymore? Uh, yeah, we're working ooh. on another core book. Uh, right now, it's they came from Classified. Um, because, well, we're not revealing the title, are we? Uh, so the subject matter is currently Classified, but it is going to be a game about Classified, and it is uh, turning out to be very, very good. It's got lots of inspirations, like Classified, Classified, and Classified. <laughs> and, uh, one of the um, authors uh, who's turning his final draft posted on our team Slack the other week, uh, this is the most fun I've had working on any role-playing game, so I take that as high praise. I like it when writers <laughs> feel... <laughs> feel like they've done good work and had a good time doing it mm. uh, i would hate for people to work on any of my projects and think god that was a slog um <laughs> but yes there is another one coming i imagine we will do some kind of uh, funding campaign for it later this year um and of course there's camp murder lake as well although that's not a full game um it's it, we're not containing the sort of core rules in that one it is a um supplement to beyond the grave because it's horror but it still has new playable archetypes in, which are basically your character classes. It still has new cinematic powers, new quips, all sorts of things. So it's it's kind of a game in its own right. It's a chunky source book. Uh, talking about game, game mechanics, um, so you were talking about... Um, uh, oh, what's What was it called? The, the one with the mages in it. Um, Mage Descension. Yeah, Mage Descension, uh, where you can sort of alter reality. How... How do you go about bringing that, making that a game mechanic? Because obviously that's quite a big power. That's you know that's quite you know mm. that's game changing. So how do you how do you um not well cope. nerf yeah <laughs> cope and nerf it slightly so it's not too overpowering for people. Uh, well, it depends on the tone of the game that you want to hit. Uh, so if you um for instance want to do they came from and you have cinematic powers cinematics are very much like metaplot powers 
uh, like Mark was just talking about, where you can have things like a cheap set where your characters can literally run through a wall because <laughs> the wall is cheap. Although your characters ne are never acknowledged they're on a movie set or anything like that, um, you can treat the game as if it is a movie as players. Uh, you can have things like deleted scenes where you can insert a flashback to justify why your character now has a rocket launcher. On <laughs> or, you can, or you can insert a missing reel so that if Centipus, the hundred tentacled octopus, is about to eat everyone and there's no chance of you succeeding, you insert a uh, missing reel and then the game starts with your character somewhere completely different. You're never allowed to refer exactly to how they escaped. They can make inferences and references to, gosh, I've never seen someone do that with a watermelon before. <laughs> but you can never actually explain how you do it. Now, that's a game with godlike powers. But the reason it works is because of that meta conceit, the fact that the players are all in on the joke. The characters aren't. But because we're tinkering around with a cheap movie, we can slice it up, you know, edit it however we like, and it's fun. With Mage of the Ascension, it's a bit different because Mage of the Ascension is uh, ostensibly a serious game. And you have these godlike powers that you can use and utilize as, as you wish. But there is always a cost to it. And again, it comes down to tone, it also comes down to meta plot. Um, so, for instance, one of the most famous or infamous parts of Mage Ascension is this thing called Paradox, which is when your mage uses a power that the people around you, or just reality, cannot abide, cannot understand, cannot rationalize. It creates a paradox. This, is, this could be something like your character turning into the human torch and blasting fireballs, for instance. Now... For most people, that's going to make no sense and it will send them into some kind of um, spasm, you know, because they just don't get it. The universe will try and correct itself in Mage the Ascension, and usually the way it tries to correct itself is starting with you, the person who just screwed things up. And um, at its most severe, Paradox can basically create a black hole that will eat you. Right, and that'll be it. You're gone. The, the problem... The universe has reached consensus again. You never uh, existed. That never happened. But you can also resist paradox, or you can use your magic in subtle ways. And this is how mage tends to work. Mages can use their godlike powers as long as they can find a way to justify it within the universe. So, for instance, if you want to throw fireballs to use that or magic missiles to use the sort of old wizard staple as long as your character let's say your character is a virtual adept in mage the ascension so you're hooked up to all kinds of technology if you have a vaguely futuristic looking rifle under your arm as you're firing magic missiles that rifle doesn't need to work your magic makes it look like it works and that's where it looks like the bolts of energy are coming from so people might understand that a little better. If you want to fly from building to building, well, maybe you'll get a cape or maybe you'll get some kind of, you know, a Goldberg machine, essentially, as it's called in Godlike, uh, another role-playing game, to make it to justify how you're doing it. Science doesn't have to work, but as the old saying goes, you know, science and magic, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's... You have to frame the argument with reality in a way that everybody else will accept. 
so yeah. they don't all aggressively say that's not possible exactly. and it snaps back yeah and there's uh, an entire faction in mage the ascension called uh, the technocracy or in the victorian age in m20 victorian age it's called uh, the order of reason who are mages who are all about who are all about consensus about using our power to make sure everyone else stays oblivious at its most basic the traditions your generally your first choices of characters for most people are people who would be happy if the entire world was awakened to magic now that's very much a utopic ideal most people aren't prepared or aren't uh, capable of handling magic but in theory wouldn't it be wonderful every if everyone was awakened and everyone could ascend that's what the most dangerous tradition mages want on the other hand you've got techno technocrats who believe in the in constantly keeping everyone else asleep the only people that can be trusted to utilize this power is us so we will ensure there's a blanket of silence essentially and they are always hammering on about consensus we need consensus of opinion that means everyone has got to believe this we're not going to try and wake up anyone because it just leads to danger and chaos now that's a very black and white view that i've I've painted these traditions and the technocracy are a lot more nuanced than that but it's one of the aspects of Mage the Ascension that's quite a lot of fun to play around with especially if you do the sort of He-Man Christmas special plot where you've got the traditions having to work with a technocracy for once because there's a greater threat on the horizon some <laughs> diabolical Nefandos or something yeah Actually, one thing, one of the best kind of excuses I've ever come across, I think, was in the one they called rule books for mage, was basically some mages running around doing reality breaking effects and had a team of acolytes running after them with video cameras and uh, filming in progress placards. Yeah. Hey, yep, it's just special effects, guys. Yeah. yeah. Um, like I say, tonally, it's possibly a bit, you know, out there, but. No, but, but it, it, it works. It, it, that it is works. how you can are get the, it to work. Yeah. Is, are yeah. the rules then? So, like, for example, um, these guys are, the acolytes are running around with these placards and stuff. Do you have to roll to see if people around you believe that this is fake or real? Or is it yeah. just, yeah? Yeah, but it's, it can be as simple as um, the storyteller rolling a character's, I don't know, perception and awareness versus your subterfuge and manipulation or something like that and so you roll against each other to see who is whether this person is credulous or whether this person <laughs> isn't you know um but yeah it's a pretty simple system uh and yeah you can get to godlike levels of power where you just don't care anymore paradox is no fear for you but those games of mage tend to take place largely in the spiritual realms more than on earth because by that point earth is pretty mundane um <laughs> but mages can create their own worlds in essentially ephemeral spaces uh you have your own pocket page you can go to war with other mages in these these places so you know great big sieges of towers floating in the sky and that kind of thing at that point you don't have to care what the mundane human thinks because you're so powerful you no longer associate with them you're on another level hence why it's called mage the ascension you are ascending in power that sounds really interesting, actually. 
Though it's given these fellas bad ideas because what's going to happen in our Dungeons and Dragons game is Pete's going to go start arguing with me that the reason he was able to do something is because oh it was a it was it was a uh, it was it's a reel and he's just inserted it in it and he's just like he's going to start adding things in. <laughs> it caused me a lot of problems for my Dungeons and Dragons game. I think. If we were going to do that to you, we'd done it a long time ago, Matt. <laughs> they already argue. They already argue with me is not enough without sort of kind of firing in. Yeah, well, you know, it's because such and such, and I'm like, no, no. <laughs> That's what you get for using the word homebrew so often. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, foisted by my own petard. <laughs> so, what games? What games do you play for fun, Matthew? Oh, I never play for fun. Um... <laughs> So my regular, my Friday um, gaming group, uh, which are peop- who are people I would have typically met up with in person to game with, but obviously over the last year haven't been able to. Uh, we still play online. We are in the midst of the Great Pendragon campaign, um, have been now for the last year or so, having concluded a, what were we playing before? Call of Cthulhu, Horror on the Orient Express. Yeah. So uh, we do, and I was playing Lancer with some of them as well, uh, which is a mech game, mech RPG. Um, so I do lots of playing, I, I do lots of playing partly because I need it for the inspiration, uh, and it's also a nice mental break. I enjoy role playing, so it wouldn't be, it wouldn't make much sense for me to say, okay, once I stop working, I want to switch off from games because I love playing games. But there is, of course, a difference between running games for fun and running games because I need to play test them. Mm. That said, I run a lot more games than I play. Uh, I, I'm just more comfortable as a GM, and also because I'm enough of an egomaniac that <laughs> I I see run, playing a game as the possibility to play about 100 characters in one game. So, <laughs> na- you know, I, you, all of you people, you just get to play one character for 12 sessions. I mean, I get to play dozens. <laughs> um, but I have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com, slash Matthew Dawkins, uh, where I run games for the people who patronize me. <laughs> and um, I'm running Call of Cthulhu, Cthulhu by Gaslight, V5, um, Vampire the Dark Ages, and a game called Broken Rooms. And that's um, five different games on the go. I run one session for each group a month right now, more if we can fit them in. Um, but yeah, uh, so I get a lot of gaming in every month and I find it helps me. It's, um, I'm never more inspired than when a player does something at the table that I'm not expecting. Oh yeah. It's one of those things though. It's like, they, they, like, I don't know how you do that many games. I I game a lot, mostly sort of board games and and stuff like that, but like Dungeons and Dragons takes up quite a lot of my life and that's just one group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it literally just eats my life away. But you're like you're saying, you know, when somebody does something that you're not expecting, as much as it annoys you because you've you've built up this like I used to I used to write loads of stuff. I'd write out these like reams and reams of things for them to do or what they would do if this happened and they just do none of it. And so I just sort of went, right, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to do some oh, vague, yeah. a vague idea of where we're going, what's going to happen and see what happens. And things actually get 
better because they do stupid stuff or they do things completely outside of the box and you're like wow that's that's pretty mad that works and then you just sort of kind of go with it and it sort of develops well, the story a lot better i think so when i first started running D, because most people start with D, um it's this sort of entry drug um i uh, when I ran campaigns of Dungeons and Dragons, usually set in the Forgotten Realms, of course, I would write essay-length campaigns. I would write in box text the dialogue I wanted NPCs to say. I would write out every single monster stat block. Everything, every single thing would be written down in minute detail. And so when I would go to the gaming club, I'd go with like a six or seven books in my backpack <laughs> and loads of notes because this is what role players do and especially and in the uk we often have gaming clubs it's not as common over in the states where people often meet in gaming stores or over houses we at least up until recently would often have gaming clubs in scout halls and village halls and things like that I run one. yeah uh well and i i used to attend one that religiously every sunday and um I, that's how i ran games for years several years and then i was running pathfinder once and i had it was set in the forgotten realms again um uh, i had put these five mystical towers in a mountain range uh south of Athkatla on the sword coast uh, i think there was the cloud peak mountains but either way these towers had appeared out of nowhere and so adventuring bands from all around were going into these mountains to see well can we get in, can we break into these towers i wonder what's there there's all kinds of myths surrounding who these towers once belonged to and why they're suddenly here again and so the players got there they went into the first tower I signposted, which was good because I had laid that dungeon out sort of tile by tile in my head and on my notes, and they went through it. Wonderful adventure. And I intended for them to then go back to the city, do more research. But no, they wanted to go into another tower. And they were quite adamant about it. Not hostile, but I just thought, okay, well, what what's the harm? <laughs> Let's let them do it. Except I hadn't mapped any of it out. Oh, I, I just had nothing, nothing at all. So I just thought, okay, well, let's see what they do. And I set up some really horrible traps and monsters near the beginning to hopefully deter them. But they pushed on, as players do. Um, this is the most irritating thing as a GM is when you put a monster that's far too powerful for the player characters to actually defeat in the hope that they will be sensible enough to run but they never bloody do they get wiped <laughs> nope. out by the beholder um so in the end they went into this tower uh the tower of illusion and i just had to improvise the entire thing i improvised the entire thing from the ground floor to the top floor and the boss encounter at the end of our four-hour session and and what i had written was all about the adventures on the way back to the city and what they were going to do there so i had to improv everything and what i found at that point was oh okay so all i need is the most basic idea of what's going to be coming up and let the players fill in the rest with mm. their expectations and occasionally spring a trap or an encounter they expect, sometimes throw something they don't expect. And for a while after that, with my confidence boosted, I thought, I could run any game like this. Why did I ever spend all those years 
mapping everything out, writing everything out to the nth degree, spending hours and hours and hours writing my adventures when I could have improvised it all along. But eventually I came to the conclusion that I had to spend those years writing things to the nth degree. I had to get that practice in. I had to build up my confidence to be able to improvise mm. adventures like this. Because if I had just gone in with my first adventure trying to run a game, trying to improvise everything, just trying to remember everything from the DMG and the player's handbook and all the rest, it would have fallen flat on its face. But practice as a GM in any other pursuit makes you better to the point that eventually you can do it without the stabilizers on. And yeah, and think- so that's that's how I run most, most games now, but sometimes I'll have the book beside me. In Pendragon, I, I've been running it for nearly a year and I still have the battle rules beside me because I want to get everything right, but I don't need to write everything down. I think that's the um, the sign of a good GM, and I take a lot of steer from uh, this guy called Ben Fee. He he does stuff for Geek Pride now and again, um, and he's an amazing he's an amazing dungeon master. Like he does all kinds. He did call I could call of Cthulhu with us. He did Rogue Trader with us. He did uh, Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons with us, Warhammer. Um, but the best the best thing he's done is being able to do stuff without you knowing that it's improvised. And then you find out later that, you know, he just made it up. Like, for example, we were playing a Rogue Traeger campaign, which we did for like two years. And um, there was a part in it where we were meant to be going uh, to meet a lot of other Rogue Traders uh, to get a, uh, to find out what this like, uh, this Sapphire was. And it was just a special gym. We were basically meant to go, the main quest was in that direction. And he had these sort of little side quests. He's like, okay, so um, you need to leave these medical supplies off in a, an imperial world. Um, you know, you, you can make a bit of money out of it. You know, you're rogue traders, you can make a bit of money out of it. So we did that. And then we decided that we were going to um, rip off the governors on the planet and then give the medical supplies to the people. And then we started a revolution on the planet and then the pl- and then it got to the point and this was literally this, none of this was meant to happen it got to the point where um he sent out an army of pdf so planetary defense forces to basically like you said like there's no way they're going to push on for this there's literally there's an entire regiment of guardsmen here there's um there's all kinds of like you know tanks and 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 valkyrie air airships and stuff all kinds of crazy stuff there's no way they're going to do anything <laughs> but my guy had a really high sort of uh effectively charisma um um trait so i was really good at talking uh, to people so i basically had them hook up a um like a, a sound system in this mm-hmm. like we called it Gurk. it became my guys called my guys called Gurk. so they called it Gurk's landing afterwards but it was like what was Gurk's landing this this sort of like uh sound system we had one of the admet guys do it and i basically said right i'm going to talk to this guy and he's going to tell me all the bad shit he's doing to this world and then it's going to get broadcast around the planet because that i'm going to basically persuade him to do this and it happened just like that persuasion rules were like super high managed to do it all so i managed to basically start a revolt in the entire planet and then <laughs> became governor and then he had the sort of sort of he said i'm literally gonna have to figure out how to do 
planetary sort of maintenance and you know um, mechanics and stuff so we had to figure out all this stuff about you know where's all the money coming from who's in charge of this this and this and it got to the point where we're so engrossed in in planetary management and dealing with my new sort of kingdom that i sort of find that he just kind of went right i've had enough of this so he started kind of sabotaging things like left right and center and everything we did it was something bad would happen to the point where it was just like we had to leave and then he implanted it with some uh, chaos spawn and stuff, so we couldn't come back. <laughs> but afterwards, no, it was just like he's just like, come back will be inquisitors. Yeah, right? exactly. So he was just like, you know that you know. But the thing is, the way he did it was so good because it was like we were so engrossed in it, and it wasn't like there wasn't like there wasn't loads of battle maps, there wasn't a load of stuff because he obviously hadn't thought about it. He sort of just went. He just went with it. There wasn't a lot of butt, but he sort of, the way he sort of talked to us about it and the way he sort of kind of let people go off and do things like that made you feel like he, I didn't know any different and I didn't care that he was just mm. making it up as he, he kind of went along. And it was brilliant. Yeah. It, was so, it was so good. And it was, you know, arguably better than the main sort of kind of thrust of the game because it was completely off the top of his head. It usually is. Yeah. Oh. If the, uh, it's the old thing in Call of Cthulhu. Usually what the players are thinking is going to happen is worse than what you've got planned. <laughs> and so you've got to balance that that line of, do I give them what they want, um, which is sometimes incredibly satisfying to the players, or do I go with my initial instinct or what I've got planned, knowing that it's going to build up to something more? And knowing when to draw that line is a very is a you know decent talent to have uh, but i often find that in role playing games especially when it comes to the minor things if a player or their character suggests they want to achieve a certain thing or they you know they want to want a certain person to be behaving in a certain way that kind of thing or that's what they expect then deliver on that or come up with something that is significantly more interesting there's no fun to someone just saying no because that's what you've got planned unless there is a sort of no and here's the reason why Mm. um, for them to follow up with Um, but it's um, on the subject of I guess going off piste with games yeah I've um I've done the old thing in Shadowrun where I've been part of a group of Shadowrunners that we met. We met the Johnson. Well, we weren't. It wasn't even the Johnson. The John, Mr. Johnson gives us a task. Uh, we have to deliver some kind of microchip to somebody and um, collect some money or f- facilitate a deal. And in the end, of course, we gunned everyone down and stole the money and the microchip, <laughs> um, which isn't something. So it's fun. It's fun when you do it. And it's definitely, and some GMs love that kind of thing. But it's one of these unspoken uh, rules or pieces of advice in role playing is that players should really try more to get on board with what the GM has planned. Because it's, it's not Are you just listening, you two? Are you listening, you two? <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll find that we do try very hard, Matthew. <laughs> Yeah, it's not just collaborative among the players, it's collaborative <laughs> with the GM as well. Yeah. And sometimes it isn't, and sometimes that can lead to GMs feeling very disappointed. And I've been in games where I felt bad afterwards because the GM has floundered because the players all went against their expectations. I've been that GM before. Um, so again, it's knowing 
it's all about communication. Knowing the people you're playing with always helps. My rule of thumb is if I'm playing in a one-shot or if I'm playing at a convention, uh, as an example, I will tend to follow the GM's lead pretty tightly. And I will, I'll have a good time. And I, most of the people at the table probably will as well. Uh, I find players <laughs> who are disruptive in those games aren't being terribly considerate to the person who has written a game is potentially running for people they don't know that kind of thing but if it's with the gm i know really well and there's a certain amount of fluidity to the way we can play and the way this person runs then you know all bets are off and we just play our characters as as, be as best we can without all of us just being a bunch of maniacs that are going to shoot each other at the first opportunity. Although that, that can sometimes Paran be fun. So you played Paranoia. <laughs> I, I'm currently arguing with Pete's character about why there isn't uh, why there isn't carrier pigeons within a certain part of the land because he's like there should be there should be carrier pigeons around here I should be able to send a message and I was like I don't want you to send a message back there because it's going to I want there to be time and it's just like yeah but I want to walk around the city and find a carrier pigeon and I'm like god damn it Sabina Ramses 3000 BC <laughs> I, I know so I've had to make up this thing it's like right well there's lot you're you're on an island there's lots of prey birds. Some of the local gentry, some aristocracy use them for short periods, but you've got 450 miles. It's unlikely they're going to get there in time, blah, 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 blah. And it's, it's like, <laughs> we spent literally an entire day oh, arguing oh. about pigeons. <laughs> it's like, very amusing. <laughs> so, so, Matthew, um, obviously, massive fun again. So, what do you do that's not gaming? <laughs> good question shock shock horror good god is there anything else in my life um hmm. next question yeah um i read a lot of history books um What's so i i digest i just digest media as much as everybody else you know i play i play video games i watch movies i watch tv shows that kind of thing um i in a in a better world that's less racked with covid i i enjoy traveling just like everybody else um especially to warm countries but not always um and usually european actually i don't really like traveling across the atlantic every single time i try my plane tends to have something go wrong with it um but yeah my Right now, my main preoccupation when I'm not writing games uh, or playing games is reading Russian history. Okay, what, what era? <laughs> um, right now, I am reading a fantastic um, pair of books as part of a trilogy. The third one hasn't come out yet by uh, Stephen Kotkin, who is an American historian mm. about Stalin. Okay. Uh, I've I've always been very interested in um, the Russian Revolution yeah. and well all of the revolutions of the 19th and early 20th century. I I love reading about Italy and Yugoslavia and Russia around that time. Um, well, it's a big period of time. Um, but no, uh, it's just something that fascinates me, and I find it sometimes more inspiring to read. Um, non-fiction than fiction. Um, but not, nothing against fiction. It's just I spend so much of my time in fiction 
um, that I I kind of have to ground myself in real world history. I'll listen to plenty of pod podcasts, but uh, mostly about movies and uh, people's observations on TV shows. But yeah, I get a lot of input. And when I'm not doing that, I'm doing childcare because I've got a four year old son, and hey, he takes up a lot of my time, as one would imagine. Yeah. I um. <laughs> Oh, I've got three of us. Carry yeah. on. Have you been watching Wonder Vision? I have not actually. We do have Disney Plus, yeah. but I've not um, not been watching Wonder Vision, unfortunately. Uh, I've not watched The Mandalorian yet either, oh, uh, which I know I'm supposed to. Um... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, was, I was watching so Wonder Vision, and it just came to me um, a few days ago. So I've just brainstormed it over the past week. It's basically a marauder in going into full quiet and the sword as a technocracy trying to contain it. Well, now you've piqued my interest. <laughs> <laughs> no, literally, I was like, like no, you've always seen the MCU movies. It's like... Um, no spoilers, by the way, Pete. I've still got two No spoilers. I'm not going to do any yeah. spoilers. Yeah. But... Obviously, Although was... Mage fans who just heard you say that will say, "What? You just ruined!" <laughs> I got, I got that metaphor entirely. <laughs> um, That's fine. Yeah. We'll give them his email address and die for cover. But yeah, it's <laughs> not basically like, her powers are defined as reality altering, and obviously, and like basically, her quiet goes into full, as the trailer implies, '50s sitcom. Mm. And there is, without going into spoilers, attempts. To find out what's going on, Except for and I'm going to leave it at that. But yeah, it's basically that's a, she's got a marauder. It's quiet, best, and it suddenly just clicked when I was watching it. Best TV show I can recommend uh, to anyone, um, providing they've got the mindset to digest it, I suppose, is a TV show that not enough people watched when it was on called The Leftovers. Um, Leftovers has three oh, seasons. Yeah. It's a complete story. Um, it wasn't cancelled prematurely or anything like that. It's got three seasons. It's available on Amazon Prime, though you have to buy it. It's an HBO TV show. Uh, so if you're in America, it'll be on HBO Max. And um, it's a series where, at the very start, essentially what happens is 2% of the world's population just disappear. They just disappear. Some people assume they're raptured. Some assume there's a scientific event. Whatever the case, 2% of the world just vanishes. The series itself, the first season, takes place three years after that and doesn't ever really handle the mystery of where these people have gone. That's not the important thing. The important thing, the focus on this series, is the psychological effects that this event, this mass global trauma basically has on the remaining 98% of the population. How do you live? How do you aspire? How do you pretend everything is normal when you know something like this can happen at any time? And when people you may have loved or loathed have just vanished, you don't know if they're dead, so you can't grieve, you can't necessarily move on, you don't know if they'll come back, so you can't necessarily get into another relationship guilt-free. Um, there's all kinds of baggage here that these characters are carrying around. So everyone in this world is, in effect, traumatised by the departure, as it's called. 
Now, that's just the premise of it. The acting in The Leftovers, the performances, the writing, there is nothing in The Leftovers that I would consider poor or even average. It is just utterly fantastic. It's very heavy going. It mm. is very, very heavy, especially the first season. It's n the first season is probably the most depressing season, um, but it's... Um, it's still incredibly watchable and I really recommend people do but yeah definitely if people have got a mind not just to watch a gripping drama but also something that handles things like religion and the formation of cults and why people join cults looking for meaning if they're if they are given an answer some people will just latch onto it it's a brilliant uh, thing for that and can really inform you if you're a role player for games like Vampire the Masquerade, where suddenly your life has changed because you're undead, how do you go back to the people you love? Um, or Call of Cthulhu, why is this person in a cult? You know, Why did they give themselves over to Niall Athotep or just a very charismatic high priest? It's a magnificent piece of inspiration. And a lot of us have watched binge-watched TV shows during lockdown, of course, but The Leftovers is probably the one I would hold up and mm -hmm. say, right. before lockdown ends, spend the time binge-watching The Leftovers. It is yeah. genuinely worth your while. I think I've watched everything else, um, so yeah, I'll stick that. I need to watch Dark as well, <laughs> um, but it's because it's, oh, yeah. it's German subtitles, so I have to be in a, I have to be in a sort of sp a place so I can pay attention because I don't want to miss stuff. So that's on the mm. list yeah, of no, things to do. Yeah, it's just. Um, um, yeah. Two quick you... questions. Oh, sorry. Two quick got... ones. Have you ever watched a series called Leverage? I have not, although it has been recommended to me. So, okay. um, so there's a reboot or a, a sequel coming shortly that's funded by Amazon with most of the cast coming back as like a follow up. Oh, so that's, that's due to come out this year. So it's worth probably keeping an eye on. Um, it's a. Uh, it's kind of like. The American twist on God, what was the name of the um, the BBC did the series with con artists that tried to do good the hustle. Mm. It's kind of like the American spin on that, but with with the same some of the same concepts. But the guy who runs it is um, it starts starts off in the first episode is an insurance investigator who's the, the insurance company he, he works for screw him over by denying approval for an experimental treatment for his son so his son dies and he falls off the edge falls off the edge and into a bucket mm. um but he gets conned into helping someone but but by creating a crew of um like i think it's the the hitter the hustler the thief etc and the hacker yeah and they all get double crossed and they go back after the guy and then they start trying to do what they call, they 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 become bad guys trying to do good. So they talk about how they they go to people that no one else will help, and they give them leverage. Mm. <laughs> and it's quite well done. It's very well done. The people are really very well done. They have some good guest guest stars as well. In the second series, Gina Bellman wasn't available, so they got Jerry Ryan in oh, as okay. one of her friends, for example. But they also have Mark Shepard in there regularly as um as a guest star who is the main who is the main guy's um old friend slash opponent because he still works for the company 
and he always makes everything better. I'm sorry, there's no way, <laughs> there's no other way to put it. There, um, there is a leverage RPG as well. Really? Ooh, I had, yep, I had, there's a leverage uh, tabletop role-playing game. It may be out of print now because, like most licensed uh, properties, yeah. at some they have a shelf life. You know, it's one of those things where if um, people ever want to, if people ever want to make money on tabletop role-playing games, as as in terms of the second-hand market, yeah. with uh, places like Drive Through RPG now. There's really no money to be made trying to sell on all your sort of old World of Darkness books and D and D books because all of those are available now and PDF and print on demand. Limited run stuff, yeah. Yeah, but if you want to, if you're, if you can think ahead, you know, and you buy yeah. ten copies of Leverage or the Smallville RPG or Angel RPG, Eden oh, Studios God. did Buffy and Angel, and they were really good games, but they're unavailable now and they sell at pretty high prices when you can get them because and same with the street fighter role-playing game yeah. for that matter yeah. by white wolf and then the second question was where do you stand on the new star wars star trek rather the new star trek series so discovery and guard uh, so i watched the first season of discovery and i mostly did that out of curiosity because uh, i'm not a i've never been a massive star trek fan and i went off of star wars when i was about 20 or 21 and the main reason for that i guess it was the prequels uh, i wasn't like i wasn't jumping onto the sort of train as it were you know the trend yeah um but i i was really interested in star wars i knew so much about new hope empire and return of the jedi and loved it absolutely loved it and so I went to the cinema to see The Phantom Menace opening day. I went to see um, Attack of the Bloody Clones. And I went <laughs> to see Revenge of the Sith. I saw them all in the cinema. And I think by the end of Revenge of the Sith, I almost went to see Revenge of the Sith begrudgingly. I think mm. I went there and I was thinking by this point, you know what, I don't just don't feel this series anymore. And so I got to the end of the movie and I just never... I, since then, I have not seen any of the new movies. I have, uh, as I said, I've not seen The Mandalorian, which I understand is very, very good. And I, I imagine if I'm to watch any Star Wars again, it will probably be that. It's like the series. It's like um, the originals. It's it's the same sort of aesthetic. So you might like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, again, I have no doubt that it's a really great series. But my sci-fi kick has, le- well, the thing that's maintained my interest in sci-fi was Farscape when that was on. I loved Farscape oh, to yes. fits easily for me the best science fiction TV series and I think it still holds up um, probably because they use CG quite little yeah. um, compared to something like let's say Babylon 5 uh, which as is famously looking somewhat dated now. There's plenty of fantastic on the station bits but um any of the space bits just look a bit crummy now, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Farscape used lots of animatronics and puppets, famously yeah, because lots of the gym, basic gym CGI there was like to enhance the, enhance the physical effects. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. the sole uh, mm. purpose of it. Um, yeah. And Battlestar Galactica, yeah. uh, I got into <laughs> that. I think after it finished, but I loved it. And then, on in retrospect, realised I only loved the first two seasons. But I still love yeah. the journey of yeah. <laughs> first two or three and, se- three seasons. It starts yeah. going downhill. <laughs> and did you try? Did you try Caprica at all? 
Uh, yes, and it was it was decent. It was a good enough series, but it still left me feeling a bit cold afterwards. But these days, I think The Expanse is probably the best. Oh, I love The Expanse. Oh, so yes. good, so and good. It has its own tabletop role yeah. game by Green Ronin, which is very, very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I've not worked on that one. But yeah, the expanse is excellent. There is no, I can find no fault with it whatsoever. Yeah, so the characters are so compelling. They really are. Uh, I mean, I, I love it. I think it's one of the greatest scenes. My wife is also loves science fiction, but she has trouble with some of the characters. And like, she's, she said, this is really realistic, very grounded. She's an engineer by trade, but she looks at some of their hair floating around and thinking, an engineer wouldn't have that. When you're working on big machines, your hair would not be loose like that. <laughs> and it's one of the things that, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I can just accept it and move on, but... It's pretty. But what, <laughs> it's it pretty. is pretty. It's pretty, but it's just oh. like, no, you wouldn't have your hair like that. <laughs> um, I was going to say, going back to um, what you are saying earlier, that you've wrote for video games. Yeah. And I... I, I, I'm, I've, I've got to ask because I'm assuming that you've probably played video games throughout your whole life and you've probably yeah. looked at one or two and thought, Joe, I'd love to like maybe do my own contribution. So it, it doesn't even have to be RPG, but if there was a video game series that you say you were told you could write for any video game, you could create your game tomorrow, what game would you choose? And more importantly, what would you do with that IP? Hmm. <laughs> That's a very good question. One I don't think I've ever really considered. Um, Great, so... you guest already, John. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, it's a that's a really good question. You got over an hour into it before I broke the the guest, so you know it's an improvement. <laughs> so the the obvious answer would be a Vampire the Masquerade themed video game, but I have spent a lot of time working on Vampire now, and so it would probably be nice to work on something that wasn't. Um, if I was to do a video game, the one advantage I'd have with Vampire is I know the subject material so well, its content would be pretty easy for me. Uh, but easiness isn't always appealing. Sometimes it's nice to have a challenge. In terms of video game plots that I've enjoyed or video games I've really enjoyed. I always put something like Metal Gear Solid 3 up there. I think that's a magnificent console game. Well, of course, it's on the oh, yes. PC as well. But the Bioshock series. Yep. Um, those two. I mean, I love... I, I, I see no shame in loving the Mario games. Uh, I don't think they're specifically for kids. I think the best level design, the best... Um, playability of uh, and best graphics or just graphically it's gorgeous um is mario odyssey i think it's wonderful most uh, mm. absolutely sublime fantastic game and i i get a bit frustrated when adults get a bit sniffy with the idea that, oh mario's for kids this, and i don't think oh no i love the mario games no. you know, even um what was it a couple of weeks ago uh 3d world which was originally on the wii u yeah. That got ported over, and I had yeah, to I get just, that. I have picked that up. I've not played it yet. Yeah. But um. the game I would love to work on in some capacity, and especially if I could turn it into any kind of role-playing game, uh, would be Hollow Knight, which Whoa. is a um, side-scrolling Metroidvania. I love um, that game. 
it's it's magnificent probably my my game of 2020 which was a bit late um but it's it's a game that and cuphead i played to death in 2020 and got my s ranks or p ranks or whatever they were in cuphead so i can successfully say i played it to death um pretty much to my death but <laughs> i do love metroidvanias i love the super metroid series i love um what's it called uh the sort of ultra sacrilegious uh metroidvania blasphemous um it's uh, available on most platforms and has an incredibly evocative style but anyway hollow knight i think is just a wonderful mix of images playability and sound it's just the perfect video game for me and if i could m somehow make any element of that into a tabletop role-playing game i would um i don't think i'd be able to contribute much to a game like hollow knight in the video game space uh, because it's less to do with narrative and more to do with the adventure mm. and that sort of falls yeah. falls out of my skill set but were i to do writing for a video game um to work in any capacity on a Metal Gear or a Bioshock would be amazing. Oh. Um, I, do I don't Gear... think it will ever happen. But <laughs> would you do Metal Gear Solid as in like you know um, Big Boss um, Snake, or would you go for Solid Snake? Well, that's the problem now, isn't it? Because most of the blanks have been filled in. I would probably go prior to that. I would do the Cobras from Metal Gear Solid Three, set in World War Two. Okay. Um, nice. or the start in the spanish civil war work my way up to let's say 1946 or so and yeah with the boss and the fear the pain the fury and the end and the sorrow you know and have a could do a team based don't know but um that that would be interesting because then i wouldn't have to be reliant on the convoluted snakes naked snakes venom snakes big bosses and various other strangely named snakes i've only ever played <laughs> one uh, metal gear solid game and tech it's metal gear solid 2 and your planners riding and that's the only, yes. <laughs> that's the only one i've ever played and i'm not playing 20 minutes yeah, that's yeah. better than me. I've never played any Sonic, any uh, Metal oh, Gear. Oh, guys! Yeah. <laughs> I've got an abiding love of Metal Gear because my first games console, my first games console was the Nintendo Entertainment System. Oh. We had an we had an Atari, but my first game was my first console was the Nintendo, and one of my first games on the Nintendo was Metal Gear. Um, yeah. which wasn't the original Metal Gear, it was a port from the MSX, which was a Japanese-only console. Um, I, had, and... I had an MSX. Ah, the, 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 my first ever home computer was a Toshiba MSX <laughs> PC, because obviously the MSX was a standard, so small world. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so I had the Nintendo version of Metal Gear, which famously didn't even have the Metal Gear robot in it. Uh, it was replaced for graphical reasons with literally a blue screen of death. Solid Snake <laughs> entered a room and taking up half of the room was a boss called Supercomputer, which was literally the bottom half of a monitor, which was blue. And you had to plant 10 plastic explosives on it. It did nothing. It didn't try and defend itself. You just had to plant 10 plastic explosives on it, blow it up and 
you had destroyed Game the over. NES equivalent of Metal Gear. Um, but <laughs> either way, it was um, a game that I absolutely loved because it wasn't just about running around shooting things. It wasn't Contra, which nothing wrong with Contra, but Contra didn't appeal to me. Um, whereas Metal Gear and having to juggle your inventory and sneak about, even back then in 8-bit, you still had to sneak about because you could never take on a whole squad of um, out-of-heaven mercenaries, um, was... It just really inspired me at, like, five or six years old. And so (laughs) when I remember when um, the PlayStation versions of Metal Gear Solid was coming out, I had just got a PlayStation or PSX, as we were calling it in those days. And um, I bought, in fact, no, yeah, I just got a PlayStation with Broken Sword 2 and a demo disc. And I had like, I think I had five pounds in pocket money after a couple of weeks and uh, went into Woolworths because it was this long ago. (laughs) Uh, This is is only going to really be of interest to anyone British who's listening. And um, they had the official PlayStation magazine and uh, on a shelf and there was solid snake on the front and it said metal gear solid and it, this was the first time i had heard of metal gear in probably about 10 years since i played it on the nintendo and mm. i was completely hooked it was the first time with a video game that i was excited about a game coming out and i was so just avidly you know devouring everything i could about this game and of course then i bought it and i played it and played it and played it and loved it um but yeah it's um i've got was some that, memories was that the one with the demo disc which took you was it up to a decoy octopus i, I don't think, I think played... you got i don't think you got as far as decoy octopus you got into the base and as yeah. soon as you started going down the vent it's ended yeah um but the so first I, <laughs> I remember playing a demo disc about must have played it about three or four times because um I, I I was just so encaptured by the game, mm. and it basically you done the opening scene. You went down to the basement, and obviously you went to see Anderson, who you, obviously you find out is actually Decoy Octopus later Spoilers. on. But, Spoilers, yeah, it does, for 1998. Yeah, I've ruined it. I'm never <laughs> going to play that night. Thanks, John. <laughs> it was just that. It was just that scene. It was just because it was like 20 minutes of all these video clips, this cut scene, and mm-hmm. I'd never seen anything like that before. No. And it was just so, so gripping, so intriguing. I mean, and I remember. Can... Oh, sorry, carry on. No, I was just gonna say, and I remember when my cousin got the game, because um, he he basically said, "Oh, have you heard about this?" I said, "Yeah, I played the demo of it." And I remember that evening after leaving his house, um, I kind of I kind of borrowed the game without telling him, and um, <laughs> I, and I took it home, and he. He he he's like my aunt from my mum to say, Oh, has has John Joe taken that game with him? And it was like, Yeah, he has. So my so instead of like um because I was thinking, oh shit, I'm in trouble now, my cousin then came to stay and he said, Joe what? Let's let's just play through this game, you know, let's just get onto it. <laughs> I just remember at ten years old, I just blasted through that game mm-hmm. and we was up all night playing. Cause it's not a long game, it's about six or seven hours roughly. Yeah, and it was just, and even today, I still think it's one of the best gaming experiences that's around because it's, it's just so many wacky characters, great writing, and just you know, all right, the graphics do not hold up at all, 
But in 1998, that was that was cutting edge. Do that you, was pure awesome. Do you not? Yeah. Do, you, do you go back to these games though? Because I'm the same. Like I have, I bought, I've got like um all, all these sort of old school emulators and stuff, and all the all the old games I used to play as a kid. And I go back, and go, oh, this game was freaking amazing. I love this game. And you go back and you play it and go. Ooh, no, don't do it. Not as good well, as I see, thought it was. <laughs> so that's an interesting thing. So I'll answer that first because that's um, it's an interesting thing in gamer psychology is nostalgia and the appeal of the specifically 8-bit and 16-bit games. Yeah, and there's yeah. something about the color palette, something about the way the games were designed specifically for that NES, Master System, Super Nintendo, Mega Drive, or Genesis, as it would be in America, um, era, because something about that, those graphics, that, uh, that palette, that game design, still works. And the reason that it still works it isn't necessarily evident beyond nostalgia, except that when you look at speedrunners, when you look at popular Twitch streamers who play nostalgia games and things like that, they always play from that era. Mm -hmm. The era that gets missed out, and will probably always be missed out, is the vast majority of titles that were released on the PlayStation 1 and PlayStation 2. Um, And to some degree, the N64 and Dreamcast. And the reason is there's something, again, it's not necessarily a categorical reasoning, but there's something unsettling and displeasing visually about early stabs of 3D. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, 3D modeling. They often looked janky, I suppose the Virtual term would fighter. be now. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's yeah. V Virtual Fighter is a weird wireframe fighting game now yeah. because it's you're, you're you're not playing people that look like people and they don't look like monsters either. They yeah. just look like really poorly constructed characters. And yet, if you go back to something like Street Fighter Two on the Super Nintendo, which arguably you know, it looks worse in in terms of its graphical capability. It looks better because yeah. it is a simpler game and it doesn't have to juggle as many senses, I guess, in a way. Now, what's interesting about Metal Gear, um, I know we're running a long time, but no Metal more. Gear Solid is a is a fascinating case study in video games because for one thing the series say what you like about Hideo Kojima, Kojima or Hideo Kojima I should say and Konami and the sort of really bad exploitation that he does especially of female characters and um, there's lots of problems in the Metal Gear games and I'm not going to say but because there are lots of problems in the Metal Gear games and that's they're not always very well written there are often problems and now I will say, but. However, <laughs> the, the Metal Gear games, every single time they came to a console, they did something that no other game was doing. And that really is quite remarkable, that with every single Metal Gear game, Konami and Kojima's studio in particular were able to do something that no other game on the market was able to do. And it's and his team 
just had this remarkable ability to do that, whether it was in Metal Gear Solid with stealth and with um, sneaking and with multiple points of entry into a base and all the cutscenes and the heavy narrative and different boss characters with different personalities and things like that, or whether it was graphically with Metal Gear Solid 2, which despite the fact MGS2 was released pretty early on into the PS2's lifespan, holds up graphically against most of the games that were released by the end of the PS2's lifespan. And you can mm. argue that a console, given that it has a limited amount of memory and RAM and the like and processor speed, should have a finite amount of graphical ability as well. But somehow Kojima's studio is able to tweak it to such a degree that its game looks better than anything else. And then you've got MGS3, which is also released on the PS2 initially, which somehow looks even better than MGS2. Um, now, the other fascinating thing about Metal Gear Solid is that demo disc that you were talking about, or the, the demo mm. stage, where you start off in the water, you come out of the water, you're in a very simple room, there's like six boxes, there's two guards walking yeah. around. This is the introduction to the stealth system. This is the introduction to having to knock on boxes to draw guards' attention, not leave wet footprints, maybe sneak up behind someone and choke them, deposit their body in the water, that kind of thing. It is a perfect tutorial for one part of the mm. game in a really simple setting without being called a tutorial. And then you go up the lift or elevator and you're on the helipad. And there's three routes through the helipad. You can go the route with the guards, you can go the route with the searchlights, you can go the route with the snow and the one guard where there's footprints. Um, and again, you're presented with this choice with security cameras as well. You can sneak into the base from this route by going past guards and going in at ground level or going up some steps, the riskier route, arguably, and going in an upper level. Now, what's amazing about this is this is the part of the game everyone remembers. And the reason I can recite it verbatim isn't because I was playing Metal Gear Solid yesterday. It's because visually and design-wise, it was stunning, and it turned gameplay on its head. No one had considered making games like this before. And then it stands in absolute contrast to the rest of Metal Gear Solid. What no one remembers about the rest of Metal Gear Solid is there are no other stages in Metal Gear Solid that are like those first two parts of the game where mm. you have to sneak around. There's no other part where you have to sneak around boxes and signal guards and distract them. There is no other part of Metal Gear Solid where there are searchlights trying to spot you. And there's very few parts of Metal Gear Solid with security cameras. There's no part of Metal Gear Solid where you might leave footprints in the snow that guards might pick up on. It is entirely front-loaded so that you think wow this game is fantastic and somehow the game is short enough that you keep thinking it's fantastic by the time you get to the end and have just been go going backwards and forwards to warm up security keys and <laughs> things like that which is really bad game design but people don't think of the bad game design in metal gear solid they think of those first two stages yeah. which is again 
it's yeah. it's one of these weird unknowns. Bioshock does a similar thing with the medical pavilion. You go into the medical pavilion, you can go left down the stairs, right down the stairs, explore upstairs. You know, you can get to Dr. Steinman through various, well, not various routes, but you can explore at your leisure. And it feels mm. like a sandbox. <laughs> there is no other part of Rapture that is built like the medical pavilion. Everything else is just A to B. Mm. Fort Frolic is A to B around a central hub. And you, um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm always, I, I can wax on about this kind of thing for a long time. Just... <laughs> I, I am, I'm really interested in things like level design, game design, and What's... getting into the psychology of gamers and how you can yeah. convince but them. It's like Medal of Honor, the game, the game Medal of Honor, um, which was like my sort of first, um, my first remember of a sort of like World War Two um shooter uh was medal of mm -hmm. honor and it was sold solely on the omaha beach um yeah, level for that reason yeah and it, it was literally that was it. it was just like oh my god there's a beach landing this is so epic this is just and, and that is but the rest of the game wasn't like that it was just like it was this big epic start and then obviously it was just like a couple of you running around sort of trying to shoot some some nazis in the head and stuff and it was literally i bought it because of that and i can only remember um that the beach the beach part because that was mm -hmm. sort of, that's what that sold to me i suppose yeah. there, there was a secondary one where you you played the um you played uh british paratroopers in arnhem but um uh i it sort of vaguely remember that but it was the beach the beach landing level which sort of kind of i i can, I can vividly remember now so i have a feeling that medal of honor was medal of honor three maybe the one that starts with the d-day landings I think, uh, I think it was. I could be wrong. Um, now, what's interesting about that? Because I played that, and I think that was on the PlayStation One, or might have been on PlayStation Two. Um, <clears throat> was again from a game design perspective, it tries to emulate. You could argue it tries to emulate Saving Private Ryan more than it tries to emulate the D-Day landings. Yeah, but let's yeah. say they're the same thing, and you. Yeah, you get out of your um, landing craft. People are being gunned down around you. You try and duck behind a tank emplacement and so on. You know, you're trying to get your way to the cliff. And if you play it as the game intends for you to play it, which is ducking and covering, occasionally firing, but mostly just hiding and playing to the drama of all of it, it's a fantastic gaming experience and medal of honor tries to replicate that throughout the rest of the game the problem is it's very difficult to maintain that kind of dynamism especially if you yeah. have save points um mm. at some point the player will slow down and start checking corners rather than running around them and what happens in Medal of Honor, if you ever go back to that with one of your emulators, um, is if you ever just try and stand out in the middle of the beach during the D-Day landings, you can't die. Yes, it's true. Um, I've done it. It is, actually, <laughs> it is actually really difficult to die on that D-Day landing level of Medal of Honor. Um, I'm sure in the later ones, especially in, well, I guess, Call of Duty, it's a different license, but it pretty much took over where medal of honor left off mm. bit of crossing over there there's a lot more lethality in those games but 
Medal of Honor was so dedicated to the cinematic experience and you kind of feeling like you had bullets whizzing by you all the time, it forgot to ever have bullet, bullets hitting you. Yeah, it's true. Um, it's true. It's so, true. so yeah, if you don't play the game the way the designer wants you to play it, it becomes a really crap experience. <laughs> that reminds me of um, Sniper Wolf on the um, Metal Gear Solid. You meant to have oh. like, kind of like a really tense sniper duel, or you could just get your rocket out Yep. And just remote control the rocket around the map and just blow it up. Yeah. And suddenly what becomes a kind of really tense kind of, I guess, duel becomes a bit like Pac-Man. Oh. <laughs> yeah, as soon as you start using your remote control stinger missile. But uh, I, I hope, I like to think, and maybe I'm giving him too much credit, uh, Hideo Kojima and his team considered that. Yeah. I, I want to think that they thought, okay, well, a smart player isn't going to try and beat someone with the name Sniper Wolf with a sniper rifle um, and some diazepam. They're going to hide behind a rock and fire rockets at this person. And But, th th but there's no evidence of that in Metal Gear Solid beyond the yeah. fact that you can yeah. hit her with the rockets. What's interesting is come something like Metal Gear Solid 3 where it basically entices you to game the game. Uh, famously, there's a sniper oh, battle the with, with the end, um, who is, it's arguably, it's not necessarily as hard a battle as the one with Sniper Wolf, but it takes place across three different geographic, three different maps, which the end can keep running between. He's just a very old sniper who has fantastic camouflage abilities. Um and doesn't he doesn't fire lethal rounds at you he just tranquilizes you and if you lose you get sent back to a prison and have to try again but what's amazing about that is it almost acknowledges that yeah in mgs1 you'll fire rockets at the sniper and that's how you'll beat her in mgs3 you don't have a rocket launcher at least not at this stage so you can try and out snipe the old man you could even try and flashbang grenade him and punch him repeatedly while he's stunned. Or what you can do is turn off your console or go back to the console menu, set the clock forward by a week, go back into Which the game. Which is what I did. <laughs> yeah, go back into the game, and then it will start immediately with a cutscene of you coming across the end's dead body because he's an old man and he has literally died of old age waiting for you to beat him. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's why the best codex ever as well goes uh, this is snake he's dead what <laughs> yes he's um oh well he was over a hundred snake <laughs> no way yeah, so like, that's hilarious to you over the radio it's a bit disappointing really yeah, I, I, knew, <laughs> I knew they had things where you could you had to sort of switch out controller pads and put the controller pads back yes yeah, Psychomantis. Yeah. Yes. This might as well be the Metal Gear Solid podcast. Yeah, it really is. Hey, <laughs> Solid were the first games where every boss you went up against, you had to have a different method to beat them. You couldn't just go all guns blazing with every mm. single one. You would never, you'd never win. So obviously, Psychomantis, not only is he like disappearing and reappearing in all different places, he's throwing projectiles at you. And he's also getting Meryl to attack you. At one point, you've got to attack her to stop her from basically blowing her brains out. Yeah. And uh, Raven, obviously, going around with his rocket launcher. And he's yeah, literally knocking down yeah. the environment as well. 
he's literally like blowing up the place as you're trying to defend yourself. Um, and even fighting against Metal Gear, you know, Metal Gear, you can't just blast him. You've got to get the you've got to get the the, the actual dish that's the radar. And then when these uh, mouth opens, you're trying to then shoot inside the mouth, and it's it's just brilliant. And um, yeah, Gray it's... Fox, sorry, Gray Fox as well. Just um, just actually fighting against a, a samurai, a cyborg samurai is just it's just incredible. And it's just like that that first time I done that battle, I I literally I don't know how many times I kept thinking, oh, I can just go straight in at him. Especially when he starts shooting out the electricity out of him. And it was like, yep, I'm dead. Right, let's try again. <laughs> See, this is why I think, um, I mean, it connects back to tabletop role-playing games for me. Um, I can kind of chart a course through the media I've enjoyed uh, in terms of games and TV shows and things. Like when I was small, I would watch He-Man, of course, and, uh, and Nightmare, um, which was oh, a fantastic yeah. VR <laughs> TV series um, for kids, um, but it had monsters, it had bad guys in it, and that was the thing that always appealed to me. It was strong, or at least central characters. I loved in He-Man that you had a cast of rotating villains who would constantly pop up: Trapjaw and Spikeor and Beast Man and Triclops and all of that, and they'd keep coming back. And Thundercats, you'd have the same kind of thing. And then with Nightmare, you'd have Lord Fear and Lissard. And then I'd play video games. And if it was a video game where the big boss, to use the Metal Gear phrase, um, was just a faceless, nameless robot, I wouldn't care. But even in the first Metal Gear, every single boss had a name and said something before you had a fight with them. There was just a little bit of speech. And if you called the, your boss on the codec, big boss, in fact, you'd find out a tiny amount about them. Probably nothing, really trivial. But it made you feel invested in the plot, such as it was. And then I can see that the reason I liked games like Tekken over Virtua Fighter was because the characters in Tekken had backstories and connections to each other, whereas Virtua Fighter was nothing. Um, and and I and I keep doing this, keep doing this. So I can follow this all the way up to when I start playing role-playing games, because by that point, everyone is playing a character of note, and all of my bad guys are characters of note who may repeat, because I feel like that gives the viewer or the player in this case, some sense of investment and satisfaction when they beat them or make peace with them or whatever it happens to be. It, I've, I've adapted things like Metal Gear and Bioshock and that kind of thing into role-playing games so many yeah. times <laughs> because the characters shouldn't just be confined to that video game. A character like Psychomantis or Vamp or the fear or whatever can so easily be pulled and put into a game like Vampire the Masquerade or Godlike or Shadowrun. Or in pretty much every role-playing game, you're playing some kind of superhuman, even if it's just to a minor degree, because you have talents that the average person does not. So these video games and TV series where the where the protagonists and antagonists are the same have ins inspired me with t tabletop role-playing games definitely um so yeah that's my trajectory has always been drawn to 
games with identifiable characters with pretty weak motives, but at least they've had interesting characters. You know, they've been a bit colourful. Somebody just mean, had an extremely random message on on Twitch, <laughs> and it's in what I, what I thought was Greek. It looks like Greek, and I was like, "Oh, I can't read that." Because so I've, I've put it into Google Translate, and it says, "Oh, mm. I thought this was Greek Pride, not Geek." <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's jumped <laughs> on thinking we're talking about things Greek that Matt stuff. will do for followers. Yeah. The uh, things Matt will do. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I unfortunately know no Greek, otherwise I can't impress the viewer. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you're talking about narratives and characters and stuff. Have you been into the um, the Bioware games? The Bioware games, yeah. Well, the f- my first intro to D and D, really. I mean, I read some Dungeons and Dragons novels when I was small, but I didn't realise they were Dungeons and Dragons novels. So my <laughs> first introduction to D and D was through Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate mm. Two, Icewind Dale. And it was through playing, it was when I was at college, um, so for any Americans listening, college is a stage before university. I didn't go to university. Um, And I was at college and I was in the library and I was looking up the NPCs you could hire in Baldur's Gate, the various people you could get to join your party. So I was on Bioware or Black Isles website looking those up. Because, again, I was drawn to the characters. And someone came up behind me, an overly familiar man, came up behind me, put his hand on the back of mine as it was on the mouse, breathed heavily, and said, do you like role-playing? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh that um, I'm not doing not that service, sort of role-playing. John, John, if you watch or listen to this, uh, this is how it happened, I'm afraid. Um <laughs> He's a conservative councillor, by the way, this person. And um, <laughs> so it shouldn't be too out of keeping. Either way, he um, invaded my personal space and <laughs> and invited me to go to a role-playing club with him, which at the time... So I didn't know what he was talking about. And he said that Baldur's Gate was set in the Forgotten Realms. And I realised, oh, I've actually read these Forgotten Realms novels before. And everything sort of fell into place. And he said, we play Dungeons and Dragons every other week. Do you want to come to this gaming club uh, on a Sunday night? And I said, sure. And so I went to the gaming club and I turned up on the wrong week. And my first game wasn't D&D. My first game was Hercules and Xena, The Legendary Journeys, because that was what was being played on that weekend. (laughs) So yeah, my first RPG was Hercules and Xena. I was playing an androgynous acrobat um (laughs) i can't remember much about the character beyond that and then the week after that my first DD character was a 15th level thief um so it was something of a trial by fire the good news was i was at a high level in Baldur's gate so i kind of understood everything i was playing with i sort of translated it but the character had already been written. It was what I was assigned because no one else wanted to be a thief. So I was just um, going around poking the floor for traps and I was immediately at home. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever played the Mass Effect games? Yeah, yeah, I've played Mass Effect. So, so yeah, later Bioware games as well, yeah. Um, Mass Effect 2 was my favourite one, I would say. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, I can frankly take or leave all the planets scanning, but I think most people feel that way. Um, but I think, yeah, uh, they're a wonderful series of games. Very happy they're getting a remastered release. I really don't give a shit that they're cutting out gratuitous ass shots because, <laughs> frankly, if I want a gratuitous ass shot, I'm probably not going to play an hour and a half of Mass Effect 2 to get it. <laughs> um, what do you think of Andromeda? I've not played Andromeda. I know that it got mixed responses. Um, around the time Andromeda came out, I, I'm more or less... So, I mentioned I've got a four-year-old son. And so, over the last four years, my time playing the big consoles has really dipped off. I've got a PS4, but I don't have a PS5. And I've never had an Xbox of any kind. And... Um, simply due to the fact that i had to sort of cut one of my leisure activities out i stopped playing console games sometimes i play on the pc but the main problem was that i was working on my pc so i didn't yeah. want to spend all my leisure time in the same place that i was working <laughs> um so i just stopped doing a lot of video gaming and that was around the time andromeda came out and so I just never got to it, I, much like with the latter Dragon Age games as well, which was sad because I enjoyed those too. Mm, yeah. um, but as my son's getting older, I got a Nintendo Switch. He he likes making levels on Mario Maker 2, and I can play games like Mario and Hollow Knight for that matter, and he can watch or he can... And he's got a very good calculating mind if there's a puzzle, if there's something hidden behind a wall or something, he'll often come up with a way of getting to it and that works i think right now going back to mass effect on the t on the sort of living room tv with him watching would be a bit beyond him yeah. <laughs> yeah. um but i won't rule it out in future yeah, cool right well uh we're we're verging on our, on on two hours, which is a good time. So I think we'll uh, leave it there. Welcome to the uh, the mass the um, what's it called the Metal Gear Solid podcast. Metal Gear, <laughs> Metal Gear Solid. No, podcast. I thought we were the Greek Pride podcast. Oh yeah, the Greek sorry, Greek the Greek Pride. Pride podcast featuring Metal Gear Solid. Uh, yeah, start no. smashing plates on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, oh, uh, it's been it's super interesting. Uh, all of it, you know. Sometimes we get we get guests who come on and you have to sort of kind of prod them quite a lot. But so it's good. He's somebody who's got a lot to say because you can just sit there and listen. And <laughs> oh, you will never shut me up. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Yeah, that's that's what the new band's for. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the but... outside, you didn't have your cat filter on. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um, okay, so before we go, is there anything you want to sort of uh, push? Obviously, um, your, your Indiegogo, um, anything coming up, etc. Yeah, well, yeah, as, as mentioned, the Indiegogo for Mage the Ascension Victorian Age is rolling, is funded, so that's fantastic. Um, we are rolling through stretch goals as well, which is brilliant. That means we're releasing more books for it, and anyone who can back that is sure to have a fantastic game, because I've read the manuscript and I can tell you without any bias whatsoever that it is brilliantly written. Um, although I didn't write it, so there is there's less bias than if it was a vampire book, which I probably would have co-written. Um, I always like to point people towards the They Came From games because 
they came from beneath the sea, they came from beyond the grave. Not only are they labours of love, but they're also tributes and honest tributes to movies that I love. I love science fiction B-movies, not just because they're so bad they're good, but because I love the heart that goes into them and the stories they tell. And I love the Hammer Horror and Amicus movies, the portmanteau horror movies of the 1970s, which is what Beyond the Grave is about. So, yeah, do check out the They Came From games. Beneath the Sea is already available to buy. Beyond the Grave is available to pre-order. And finally, uh, I would say that you should always check out theonyxpath.com every Tuesday because we update on Monday without fail where our projects are. And every Wednesday, we always release something new. We are, I think, the only role-playing game company that releases a new product every single week. And I it, sometimes it's something really small. You know, it might just be a, some journals with some art on from a role-playing game. But other times, it's a big role-playing game, a core rulebook. So we always release something. And, of course, there's me on MatthewDawkins.com and my Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash MatthewDawkins. If people want to help this lowly, starving writer to live, <laughs> then they can support my Patreon and play games with me. Or they can just buy me a cup of tea through my website. There is a button for that, and I will gratefully receive any donations. Brilliant. Um uh, my my door has literally just knocked but as we've gone the end there bear with me one minute go share um okay so um thanks for uh your time it's been really interesting um we've uh well just a, a, an amazing conversation about everything literally from one end to the other it's been very good um so uh for me matt geary um with me has been John Joe Cosgrove. Take care, everyone. Uh, Mark Canty. I must go. Uh, Peter Ray Allison. Look after each other. And Matthew Dawkins. And up yours. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Thank you very much. Bye.